0: Quick start off. Uh, One segment of this podcast, I forgot to plug this guy in. So it's going to be just a little bit quieter than everything else. It's going to be in the middle of the pod. So when the the volume goes down, if you turn it up, don't forget to turn it back down because it will come back up when I plug it in. It's one segment. That's all. Sorry in advance. Enjoy the show. What's happening? Welcome into the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. This is episode nine of the new and improved, I think, Matt Bernier Show uh, for Monday, April the 6th, 2020. However you listen to this thing, thank you for doing so. YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, In themoneypodcast.com. Number of different ways for you to digest this thing. If you head on over to the you'll get everything that is uploaded from PTF, from JK, from Naomi, from Drew, uh, guest appearances from Chris Larmy, uh, other any anybody, anybody under the sun. Benny South Street, all sorts of stuff over there. You can find it inthemoneypodcast.com. You can find the audio version of this podcast there. You can also find the video version of this over on YouTube. Um, However you do that, please make sure that you subscribe and the bell icon's lit up because even if you're subscribed and that bell icon's not lit up, you're not going to get the notification that there's a new episode, that there's a new podcast that's been uploaded. So do that for the In The Money page. Do that also for my personal page. Matt Bernier over on, on YouTube. You can do the same thing there. Greatly appreciate it. I've been kind of flirting around with the idea of posting some more things, and maybe there will be more to come. So uh, something to definitely keep in mind. Matt Bernier, In The Money podcast, a bunch of different things to do. Now, with this podcast, I know for the longest time I've been saying I'm going to do the, the look at sort of the under-the-radar three-year-old fillies that could potentially figure prominently down the road. I promise I promise I'm going to still at some point. I'm not going to do it this week, though. Throw a little bit of a curveball at everyone, not just with the new setup because it's a new desk and, you know, we just needed a new desk. My workstation was not satisfactory. My wife's working from home for the foreseeable future. We need to get some new stuff in here. So I don't know if this is going to be the standard sort of setup going forward. We have have a few windows here in this uh, second bedroom office, whatever you'd like to call it. And lighting is very, very good looking this direction, but it's an awkward sort of angle for me. So I'm trying to figure out, this is all trial and error, people. It's, it look, crazy times. Trial and error as, as well. Crazy times as far as the desk is concerned. Trying to figure out what the actual setup of this thing is going to be like going forward. So maybe this is going to be good. Maybe it's not going to be good. But nonetheless, I'm going to give it a go and, and see what happens. Uh, for this podcast this week, though, I'm going to throw... The, the real curveball your way. And and I know maybe the timing of this isn't going to be ideal, but there's a part of me that in recent weeks where we've seen so many of these sort of archived uh, sporting events that have been broadcast on NBCSN or ESPN or FS1 or CBS Sports Network, whomever it is. You get back to watching them and thinking about how impressive those those games were and you hear some of the names that were playing in some of these events and you think, oh wow, you know, and they they went on to do X, Y, and Z, and oh, that was really the coming out party for this person, whatever the case may be. I started thinking about that with horse racing and, and this time of year, whether we want to call it this or not, this is the this is derby prep season. And it's gonna be a little bit more extended this year, obviously, because we're talking about the first Saturday in September as opposed to the first Saturday in May. But it it made me start thinking about Kentucky Derby's past. And just for a fun exercise, and I feel like this is going to be a good interactive piece because there are going to be some people that agree. There are going to be some people that disagree vehemently. There'll be some people that are in the middle somewhere. I went back over the past 20 Kentucky Derbies, from 2000 to 2019. And I understand that the 2019, and even to an extent the 2018 versions... Um, they're kind of incomplete as far as this exercise is concerned, but it is what it is. That's just kind of how I looked at it. I felt like 20 was a good number from 2000 to 2019. I went through and I put together the list, in my opinion, of the five best Kentucky Derby fields when I say that, I mean not only the day of, but then what those horses that ran that day went on to do for the rest of their career, not just their three-year-old season, but some of these horses, what they did is four, five, six, seven, however long they ran. And again, maybe the timing isn't great because we would still be, what, four weeks away from the first Saturday in May. I know it's early, but look, we're all looking for kind of, I don't even want to say evergreen content, but content that we can all just kind of sink our teeth into and just spitball back and forth because what else do we have right now? So let's, let's try to kind of play into that. And I need to hear from all of you on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt or beneath the video player on YouTube. Agree? Disagree? Think I'm spot on? And I'm going to give you the rationale for the five that I put out there. Think I'm an idiot? Somewhere in the middle. I'm curious what your thoughts are and I'm curious if you think my list is bogus and what your list would be and why, preferably. Because I don't like when people just say things and they don't give you any reason to back it up. I'd like to have some sort of reasoning as to why you made that conclusion. Maybe I will agree with it or maybe I won't, but at least there's some reasoning behind it as opposed to just throwing it and putting it out there for people to just look at and see. that that doesn't. I want to know why. So without further ado, this week's podcast, episode 9, is going to be taking a look at what I consider the 5 best Kentucky Derby fields over the past 20 years, going back to the year 2000. Allow me to introduce to the jury the case for the number five, the fifth best field that ran in the Kentucky Derby and what they then went on to do over the past 20 years, the 2011 Kentucky Derby field, won by this animal right here, Animal Kingdom. Animal Kingdom was uh, an interesting sort going into the Derby as that was uh, basically his first start on dirt. We didn't really know what we were going to get from him. We knew he was a nice turf horse, knew he could run on synth, had no idea what you'd get for Saturday in May. He starts training up a storm. He goes out there, struts his stuff for Graham Motion and John Velasquez. Animal Kingdom to me, and his, his credentials actually, and for me, I'm looking at it from the perspective of what I consider big races. What did they go on to win after? There could be a few smaller graded stakes races that I'll include in this, but ultimately, what were their big sort of crowning achievements that they then proceeded to to earn and win? And then when you put it all together, what does it make that field look like? How does it stack up against some of the other years? Animal Kingdom really only had one other giant victory to his name. That was the Dubai World Cup in 2013. But in my opinion, he is one of the more underrated racehorses of the past 20 years because I think he was as effective on all surfaces. Dirt, turf, synthetic, it didn't matter. The horse was just good. Um, He may have been slightly better on, let's say, turf or a synth than a dirt, but it doesn't mean that he couldn't run on dirt. Obviously, he won the biggest race that there is in the United States outside of a Breeders' Cup race. So um, I think he was the best in the Breeders' Cup mile. The year that he ran second to Wise Dan, if he doesn't get sort of forced to, if he's not forced to wait behind horses, I think he wins that race. And I think it puts a dent in the whole, the the sort of the narrative behind a horse like Wise Dan, who is awesome as he was, you know, much of the lore is him winning those back to back Breeders' Cup miles, him winning horse of the year, da, 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 da. If Animal Kingdom goes and wins that race off of, uh, what was that, a 10 month layoff, you know, I mean that. I think that would have elevated Animal Kingdom's status and at the same time hurt Wise Dan's status slightly. That's, I digress. Animal Kingdom, his only other real victory to date after that was the uh, the uh, Dubai World Cup in 2013. But there were other horses that ran in this race. and I'm going to take them, basically, the, the horses that I found to be uh, noteworthy. I'm going to take them as they finished in order so it'll go you know in theory from one to 20 or however many horses ran in the race and i'm not going to touch on all of them it'll just be the ones that i think had substantial impact on the thoroughbred racing world um after animal kingdom was arguably the most boy it's it's tough to say i'm gonna say he was the most accomplished after animal kingdom that would have been mucho macho man now mucho macho man i believe in third In that Kentucky Derby he did, behind Nero, Uh, he came back out of this race, and over the rest of his 2012 campaign, he went on, or I should say into his 2012 campaign, not the rest of it, because they ran in the 2011 Derby. He won the 2012 Gulfstream Park Handicap, one turn mile down at Gulfstream. He won the 2012 Suburban at Belmont Park mile and a quarter so you know things are going well there and then really he took that next big step forward when you turn the page into 2013 and I believe he started off in a really really crummy sort of situation because he may have been eased in the sunshine millions down at Gulfstream if I remember correctly and he was like one to five that day and you know typically when you look at that you're like this is not a good start to a campaign. He slowly rounded back into form and Ultimately, went on to win the 2013 Awesome again, culminated with the 2013 Breeders' Cup Classic. Keeping in mind, in 2012, he was only beaten by what? A head for the 2012 Breeders' Cup Classic. So, this is definitely a horse that seemed to get better as he got older. My knock with Mucho Macho Man always was, I thought if he ever got into a fight, he wasn't going to ultimately prevail. Um, He kind of squashed that theory in that Breeders' Cup Classic in 2013, Uh, because he did have, he was taking heat from basically all sides. Well, I don't want to say all sides. He was down on the inside. Declaration of War was in the middle. On the far outside, he had Will Take Charge. If you haven't seen that Changing Leads video I did, it's over on my YouTube channel, Matt Burner. You can find that. I know some people enjoyed that. For those of you that couldn't quite see lead changes. Mucho Macho Man was one of those boys that figured prominently there. After Mucho Macho Man, you have a horse like Shackelford. Shackelford came out of the Kentucky Derby to go on and win the Preakness two weeks later. Uh, My favorite part about Shackelford was he was always a hot, sweaty mess, and typically I'd look at that and say, oof, don't want any part of him. Well, that was just him. That was just kind of his M.O. He was going to get out there, be all lathered up, and he would still show up with a big, big race no matter what the situation. Um, I shouldn't say no matter what. He didn't love a wet track, but that's neither here nor there. He went on to win the 2011 Preakness, and then in 2012, he had a really, really solid campaign. He won the Churchill Downs going seven-eighths of a mile at Churchill, he came back and won the 2012 Met Mile at Belmont Park. So he's already putting together a pretty stellar campaign. Then he wraps up his career with the 2012 Clark Handicap back at Churchill Downs at a mile and an eighth, going two turns, as opposed to those two races prior that were one going one turn, one at seven eighths, one at eight furlongs. So, I mean, this is a horse that clearly had the versatility, could do a little bit of anything. He won races between a mile, he won graded stakes anyway, between seven furlongs and a mile and three sixteenths. That, to me, is always the sign of a proper good animal. Master of hounds. I know he was always kind of the butt of the jokes for some people because, you know, the Europeans typically don't come over and have a lot of success. He kind of falls into that narrative as well because he came back and did some good things. Uh, in 2012, he won two group stakes races on grass. Uh, the group one Jebo Hada on turf in 2012. And then he came back and won the group two international top cappy turf. And that was in Turkey. The Jebel Hada was at Maydan. So, I mean, this is a quality animal. The dirt just didn't end up being his thing. And how many times have we seen that? We've seen that numerous times. Horses that come over from Europe, they try it because they are of the top class. They just can't handle the main track. And guess what? Master Hounds didn't embarrass himself in the Derby, but uh, he was certainly better on different surfaces. And then the last horse that, for me, made a substantial impact going forward coming out of this race, out of the 2011 Kentucky Derby, was Stay Thirsty. Now, I was never the biggest fan of Stay Thirsty, but when you take a look and see what he ultimately, sort of his his career, what his accolades ended up being, it's not a bad career. The 2011 Jim Dandy, he parlayed that into the 2011 Travers, so he won the the Midsummer Derby. Arguably, if you want to say the Whitney's the biggest race at Saratoga, that's up for debate. The Whitney or the Travers. I will always lean Travers because it feels like that's that is the that's what Saratoga is to me. Um, and then he followed that up in 2012, nearly winning the Jockey Club Gold Cup. He loses that race by about a head, I believe, a head or a neck. But then a few months later, he comes back and he wins the one turn cigar mile. So this is another horse that has graded stakes races, grade one victories between a one turn mile and a mile and a quarter at Saratoga. So to me, this was, it may not have been the deepest as far as the horses that exited the Derby and what they went on to do and, and how they did it. But I feel like when they were at their best, this was a really, really strong group of horses. And yes, there, there were other horses that ran in the race that I could have added from a stake standpoint. I think pants on fire was in this field. Uh, I think Comet to of the top was in this field. I didn't include them because again, I'm really trying to stick to the major, major accolades for these five horses that I just rattled off. They all did some pretty darn good things out on the racetrack This field, the 2011 Kentucky Derby, in my estimation, the fifth best from day of and what they went on to do over the past 20 years. Number four for me, the 2015 group, the 2015 Kentucky Derby won by none other than American Pharaoh. He is the headliner of the group. There's no question about it, but there were some other really talented horses that ran in that race and then went on to do some pretty big things. Let's start with the big boy though. We know he wins this race. Very nicely, and, and this actually was probably one of the less impressive races that he ever won and ran. He comes back, he wins the Preakness two weeks later by a million. He comes back, he wins the Belmont, he breaks the 37-year you know, drought, if you will. Uh, wins the Triple Crown, comes back, wins the Haskell for Baffert. Yes, he lost the Travers, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But then he's put aside for a little while, they give him some time, he comes back, he puts on a show in the first ever Breeders' Cup down at Keeneland, so uh, American Pharaoh, he goes without saying. He is one of the best we've seen, and you could probably put any kind of number on it, but he's the headliner here. But he's not the only big one. Frosted, also ran in this race, I believe he ran fourth in the Kentucky Derby. He comes back. What he did for the remainder of his career, he really kind of took it to the next level in 2016. 2015, his only other big victory was the Pennsylvania Derby. He was the runner-up in the Jim Dandy behind uh, Texas Red. Uh, he dueled American Pharaoh into the ground, essentially, in the Travers. He was the one that felt the most effective at finishing third. Uh, but it obviously took the starch out of Pharaoh, and we know how that whole thing played out. He comes back. He wins the Pennsylvania Derby just a few weeks later but 2016 is when things really cranked up for frosted he wins one of the al maktoum challenges over in dubai he runs a eh, not a great race in the dubai world cup he comes back here though and he wins the grade one met mile and the grade one whitney i mean those are two of the most prestigious races that you're going to see anywhere for older horses and let alone in new york i i'm I've said it a million times, any of you that have listened to this podcast for more than a minute, no matter what version or however many years you've been listening, know that I firmly believe he was an exceptional one-turn horse and we never actually got to see him with the exception of that one race in the Met Mile really do what he wanted to do. And I've said that so many times about so many different horses. It doesn't preclude them from winning, doing different things. But that's not them at their absolute best, in my opinion. They can have big days doing other things. I'm trying to think of a, another sort of analogy. If you're, um, let's just use golf. I know there aren't a ton of golfers out there, but some of you that, that do play or watch or whatever the case may be, you know, someone may be just known for their putting. But on any other day, there's a scenario where their ball striking is just exceptional. And that's the thing that actually is what able, what's able to propel them to the victory. A horse like Frosted, he's just an exceptional horse all around. So the mile and 8th is not going to be a problem for him. He's going to be able to do it, despite the fact that I think he's going to be better or would have been better if they had campaigned him going shorter. There are so many layers that go into that because of purse structure, because of competition, because of so many different pieces. But neither here nor there. The point is, Frosted was a really top-flight horse. Then we get to Keen Ice. Keen Ice was the beneficiary of that wild duel between Frosted and American Pharaoh and the Travers. He comes, picks up the pieces, gets the job done, wins that race, then doesn't win again until the 2017 Suburban, but he did have another big victory to his name. Uh, so Keenice, say what you will, I was always sort of a detractor of his because I always thought he was just, I would have loved to have seen him on turf. Uh, I don't know that he ever did, maybe he started once on grass, but he just, it, to me, it felt like he always had such a big late finish. The problem is on dirt, that's not a conducive running style to sustain success on dirt. You can do it on turf, you can do it on synthetic. On dirt, if you continue to try to rally from well off of it, you're going to end up like a ice, where you're going to get a lot more small pieces than the whole giant slice of the pie. It'll occasionally happen. When things work out and play into your favor, whether it is a race like the Travers where the pace falls apart, whether it is a race like the Suburban. Mub Mubtaheej ran third in the Belmont Stakes. Uh, Mubtaheej ran decently enough in the Kentucky Derby when he first got over here. It took him a while to get back to the winner's circle, but he was a globetrotter and he ran. He was very consistent. He was not the horse that went out and won a ton of the races, but most of the big dances he was there he was involved in them and he was getting pieces of them he did win the 2017 awesome again on his best day he is he's probably a notch below the the definitely the top two and i would say he's probably i think he's probably better than keen ice was but he's he's let's say he's a b talent if if american pharaoh's an a plus and frosted's an a or an a minus move to he's just probably a b keen ice probably a b or a b minus Uh, And then you get into some of the other horses. that These ones are farther down the list as far as where they finished in the Derby that year in 2015. But they went on to do some things, and even pretty recently for for two of them. Bolo and War Story. Bolo wins the 2016 Arcadia. So the following year after his run in the Derby, he gets back to the grass, and that's really what he's wanted all along. He's a turf horse. He wins the 2016 Arcadia, the 2017 Arcadia, and then off of just a marathon layoff, he comes back and wins the 2019 Shoemaker Mile last year. So, I mean, this is, he's still, when he's at his best, and he's allowed to get out there, I think he's always been at his best when he's winging out on the front end. When he's feeling good, the problem with Bolo is he's just, he's been so hard to keep together. He's, he's not been the hardiest horse. He's got a lot of physical problems. But for Carla Gaines to get what she has gotten out of him, that's, that's a tip of the cap to Carla Gaines because this is a horse that the talent is, is certainly there just can't stay sound enough to stay and run multiple races time and time out. And the other horse is War Story. He wins the 2017 Brooklyn, and then he comes back last year at 2019. And again, I know, I know, it was before the trainer change. You know who he was with. Uh, the 2019 Monmouth Cup and the 2019 Harlan Holiday. So War Story is a horse that, whatever your opinion is, he still continued to produce and win races later on in his career. He was never of the upper echelon. But he could pick up those smaller pieces, those longer distance races, and still be an effective horse that could make you some cash. So, the headliners, there's two of them. It's American Pharaoh and it's Frosted. Combined with the other four that I just mentioned and the races that they went on to win following the Kentucky Derby, that to me is the reason that 2015's Derby is the fourth best field of the past 20, the past 20 if I can get that out of my mouth. The past 20 years. Audio should be back to normal, a little bit of a user error. You gotta you gotta hook the microphone up to make it work the way that you want it to. Anyway, apologies for the little bit of a lull in the volume. Uh, let's move on to number three for me. And I really toyed with making this the number two group on the list. I'm curious what you all think. Is this group too high, too low? Should they not be on the list as far as the top five is concerned at all? I put in the 2016 Kentucky Derby field, won by this horse here. This is Nyquist. Um, Nyquist, oddly enough, never went on to win another race. He was an undefeated horse leading into the Kentucky Derby. He wins the Derby. He doesn't win any of his three subsequent starts and he's retired. That to me shows how impressive the accomplishments of this field are post Derby. There's one horse throw that really takes the cake. We'll take him though, in order. Exaggerator. Exaggerator came back and won two major pieces of three-year-old hardware. He won the Preakness two weeks later following the Derby, and he won the 16 Haskell. I get it. If you want to knock him because he's a wet track freak, I tend to agree with you. I think he was exponentially better on a wet track. He's one of the few horses, you know, um, I've had a number of people that I've, I've learned from from a handicapping standpoint, and I try to just pass on anything that I learn from, from better minds and smarter minds. I know Dan Illman was always one of the people that was sort of championing this idea. It's not so much that horses like wet tracks. It's just that they hate them considerably less than everybody else hates them. There are rare instances, though, rare exceptions. I feel like Exaggerator actually enjoyed running on a track like that more than he did on a fast main track. Uh, That's not to take away a ton from him because he was a really talented horse. I just, boy, you want to talk about a horse that he moved up, I think, on a wet track pretty significantly. That's exaggerator, But point is, he came back and won the Preakness and he won the Haskell that year. Then you get to the leader and you could make the argument, you could make the argument that th- we get to the best horse that will be on any of my five lists. That's including American Pharaoh, and that's including another horse that will be coming up in a list shortly. I'm uh, talking about Gunrunner, obviously. Gunrunner. As a three year old he was he was the horse that made me want to bash my head off the wall more than any horse probably of the past I don't know, as long as I've been doing this frankly because he he always looked so good on the track and then he would do just goofy little things with his with his leads and it was enough to drive me up a wall and always want to beat him. He shows up and he runs really well in the Kentucky Derby he finishes third. And then he comes back in the Matt Win, and he wins that race and he does it all super professionally. And that was when I said, cause, and even seeing him as a two-year-old, he was doing the lead change stuff. And I said, you know what, but he, there's still ability here. This, this horse, is, he's good, but he's just got to, he's got to figure out the, the maturity stuff. We see the Matt Win; he does everything pretty much flawlessly. And I say, he's turned the corner. He's going to be one of the better three-year-olds of this group. And I, I picked him on NBC for the uh, Haskell and in the slop and it didn't work. He just didn't it didn't fire that day for whatever reason. And then at the end of the year is really when he started to put it together. He never really changed his mechanics. That's why I tried to beat him as many times as I did. But he wins the 2016 Clark against older horses and then 2017 into early 18. That is that's a pretty damn good stretch of racing. That that uh, that is That is top class, the 2017 Razorback, the 2017 Stephen Foster, the 2017 Whitney, the 2017 Woodward, the 2017 Breeders' Cup Classic, and the 2018 Pegasus World Cup, and you can also throw in at the beginning of 2017 a second-place finish in the Dubai World Cup. I mean, this is a top-level campaign. That's about as good a stretch of racing as you're ever going to see. I mean, he really was an exceptional talent. Yes, he drove me nuts. But guess what? Sometimes, I think for the most part, you need to have good mechanics, no matter what your what sport or you know athletics you're you're involved in, because the the wasted motion, the wasted energy on the the, the lack of efficiency is going to bite you in the rear end at some point, unless you are just so far superior to everyone else. And that's that's what uh, an animal like Gun Runner, or you know, we we've seen athletes that have funny sort of batting stances or, or funny motions, throwing the football or whatever the case may be, they're just that much more talented than everyone else naturally. And I can't help but think that that's that's, that's Runner in a nutshell. He was an exceptional talent and one of the best horses we've seen in the past 20 years. And, and as I said, he you could make the argument that he's the best name that you'll see on my top five anyway of the horses that ran in these derbies. After him, you go to a horse that I think is totally forgotten about recently. He only had one big win to his name coming out of a race like this, but that was more spirit. More spirit put on a show in the Met Mile. That was the day that Baffert won everything, it seemed like. Uh, The 2017 Met Mile, I think that the buyer was enormous, like way up there. And he just—he was a really nice horse that, for some reason, he never, never was able to kind of get back to his best. He—he um, he always felt like a horse that was a little bit lazy, that he just never really seemed to enjoy getting involved in, you know, in any kind of race early, except for that day in that Bet Mile when he was right up there, and I knew I was in trouble because I love Sharp Azteca in there. And when, when he couldn't get away from More Spirit early on, I was like, God. This isn't gonna work. Sure enough, it didn't. More spirit goes out there and sets the sets the track on fire. Uh, Creator, the winner of the 2016 Belmont. So you had the the three winners of the Triple Crown races. You had the Derby winner in Nyquist. You had Exaggerator come back and win the Preakness. Then you had Creator come and win the Belmont Stakes. He didn't do anything after that. And, and I understand maybe this is starting to poke some holes in this list. The big thing for me was Gunrunner's significance sort of I had to put that up there higher on the list, just given what he eventually went on to do, combined with a horse like More Spirit, combined with the little pieces that we got from Exaggerator and Creator, and then some horses that I'm sure my, many people, they'll just be afterthoughts when you think about the big, big names, but Oscar nominated, turned into a really nice longer distance turf horse. He was never a superstar, but he was honest as the day is long. He would show up, run his race, sometimes it was good enough. And then a horse that's still running and being pretty competitive in his races going shorter. And that's Whitmore. Whitmore won the 2017 Count Fleet, the 2017 Maryland Sprint, the 17 Phoenix, the 18 Count Fleet, and the 18 Grade 1 Forgo. So, I mean, and he's still racing quite well down in Oakland. So, you know, Whitmore to me is a prime example of a horse that, yes, they they got Derby fever. He was one of the more talented, precocious ones of his, of his group and his generation. But when it was all said and done, he, he didn't want to do that. He's better going shorter. The Connections realize that. They know that. They got him back to six furlong, seven furlong type races. Uh, and he's flourished. He's been a really, really talented racehorse going one turn. So uh, Whitmore is another one that when you look at this list, Gunrunner is going to take the cake every single time. There's no two ways about it. You get a really, really good horse like Whitmore in here. You sprinkle in a Met Mile winner and more spirit. You sprinkle in a couple other big names. Uh, this 2016 group, I have them ranked third as far as the top five of the past 20 kentucky derbies ranked number three due in large part to the big guy gun runner number two on my list of the best derby fields of the past 20 years uh, you have to go to the year 2007. the year 2007 i graduated from high school i was not into horse racing at the time i wasn't paying attention didn't really register with me. I would turn it on if there was a triple crown chance or whatever the case may be, as was the deal in 2008 with Big Brown. But uh, this group of horses, for me, once I got into the game, I needed to kind of retroactively go back and learn about the significance of this field and the horses that ran in this race and what they went on to do. Obviously, a horse named Street Sense was the winner of the 2007 Derby trained by Carl Nafsker. Really talented racehorse, a brilliant two-year-old, went on, won the Derby as a three-year-old. And not only did he win the Derby as a three-year-old, but then he went on to win some of the other big prizes, most notably the grade one Travers up at Saratoga. But prior to that, he did win the Jim Dandy as well, the prep leading into that. He ran well in some other races, but I think it's safe to say he will not be the most remembered name out of this group. And this is a pretty darn good group of horses. These names are names that you're going to, they're going to ring a bell for anyone Uh, The reason I didn't put this group number one is because for the vast majority, their success all came as three-year-olds. And there wasn't a ton, with the exception of the big name, that really went on as older horses to do anything of substance. So 2007, for me, landed as the number two group. He had Street Sense win the 07 Jim Dandy and the 07 Travers. He had Hard Spun come out of the Derby. He ran as well as he did in the Kentucky Derby. He finished second at a mile and a quarter. He comes back later on that year, wins the 2007 Kings Bishop, which is now the Allen Jerkins at seven furlongs at Saratoga. He wins the 2007 Kentucky Cup Classic over Street Sense. So Hardspun was a proper horse that could do a little bit of everything, but then the big name. I mean, the the name of this group, and there's no real two ways around it, I don't think. Uh, and if it's not Gunrunner as the biggest name on this list, And it's not American Pharaoh is the biggest name on this list. I think the the only other alternative would be Curlin. And Curlin, again, he was so lightly raced going into the Kentucky Derby. He it doesn't work out for him. He comes back two weeks later, he wins the Preakness later on that year. As an older as three year old, he takes on elders, he wins the 07 Jockey Club Gold Cup, he wins the 07 Breeders' Cup Classic, and then 2008, he has another phenomenal campaign top to bottom. He wins the 08 Dubai World Cup, the 08 Stephen Foster, the 08 Woodward, the 08 Jockey Club Gold Cup. He tried turf at one point in there. I mean, this is when Curlin really sort of established himself as not only I would say the best three-year-old of that generation but he established himself as as a legitimate sort of horse that you can stack up over the past handful of time however many years you want to use and say he he could have run in any one of these years any one of these generations against any one of these bests and still had, as good a chance if not better than anyone else to run his race and get the job done. Curlin, obviously we know now at this point he is an all-class, world-class sire. Um, His offspring can do a little bit of anything. I think they're even a little bit better on grass. That's usually one of the first things that my eye goes to if I can see a Curlin going, stretching out, going two turns on turf for the first time. Um, He just, but he is, he's an all-world sire. He can do a little bit of everything. Doesn't stop there though. There's some other really big names here. Circular Key, okay. Didn't, didn't win a ton coming out of the Derby, but he did win the 2008 New Orleans Handicap, so he adds to the list. Uh, Tiago, in 07, he beats Older Horses in the Goodwood, and then 08, he comes back as a four-year-old and wins the Oaklawn Handicap down at Oaklawn Park. Nothing to sneeze at. Any given Saturday, he comes out of the Derby, wins the 07 Dwyer as a three-year-old, obviously, and then comes back and wins the 07 Haskell against... Many of these contemporaries. So he established him, himself as a legitimate threat. Any other year, I feel like you could make the case that one of these three year olds probably runs the table. But because this group was so deep and could do a little bit of everything, I think that to me is the hallmark of a really talented crop. Um, by the way, any given Saturday, also ended up winning the 07 Brooklyn. So it, it's not as though he was. I, I feel like some of these horses, they may not get the do that they deserve. And, and I really firmly believe that. And it's just, it's luck of the draw. What year do you land in? Do you land in a group, you know, of three-year-olds? And I, I don't mean this in a negative light, but let's go back to, let's go to California Chrome. California Chrome's derby group and the horses that he ran against in the Preakness and the Belmont. Mm really haven't come back to they they haven't acquitted themselves really well over time tonalist is a solid horse no question about it wicked strong was fine but when you see the horses that california chrome beat and what he was able to then go on and do he's part of the reason i he's not in my top five as far as the derby fields are concerned the rest of the field just didn't do much as they got older this is a group of horses that they theoretically you put any one of these in that sort of California chrome group they could very easily have done what chrome did against his three-year-olds I'm not suggesting they all would have turned in to the world beater that he did but you know if you if you take a if you take a hard spun out of this group and you run him in that group against the the horses that California chrome ran against in, in 2014 perhaps you get a different situation where a hard spun can go and win a race like the kentucky derby and can go and win a race like the preakness it's all again it's nothing more than ballroom talk but i think that's when i go through and it's kind of a a similar assessment when you're just handicapping in general i I try to look at it and say well who did you run against because if you ran against a bunch of inferior foes well yeah you, you you accomplished you can't control who you run against but it, it it's one of those things that if you're judging it and we're handicapping it, you need to at least use your competition as a barometer and, and see where you would stack up. In theory, and with a group like this, they all ran against each other and they were all top flight runners. Uh, it doesn't stop with any given Saturday. No biz like show biz. One of my favorite angles for any of these races, like leading into the Derby, running in the Derby or the Preakness of the Belmont or whatever the case may be, are horses that are very obviously turf horses, but the connections have fever and we get it. You want to take a shot. You got a really talented animal. You want to try to find out if you can run in the derby and and pull an animal kingdom or, or someone like that. But more often than not, they're main surface of choice is going to be grass. So they run through that. Then you get them back over to the turf. Not only do they get back to their preferred surface, but in all likelihood, they've been facing better horses than the turf horses that they'll be facing at that point then. So no biz like showbiz, he kind of checks that box where you look at it and say, and I know he had some feet problems from everything that I had read that the turf was a little bit kinder on his tootsies. He gets over there to the grass, 07 Hall of Fame, 07 Kent, 07 Jamaica, which I believe now is the Belmont Derby. I mean, he he ended up being a really nice three-year-old turf horse. Then you have uh, Tuffelsburg, who won the 07 Woody Stevens at seven furlongs. And I'm pretty sure Scat Daddy was also in this group. We know Scat Daddy ended up being much more of a sort of a sire influence. He may have been the best sire out of this entire lot. But the point is, this 07 group, really, really strong race, top to bottom, Any other year, if any one of them caught a softer group, who knows what they could have accomplished, but they ended up running against one another. And for me, you know, I I could have easily swapped the three with the two. I could have easily swapped the two with the one. I feel like this top three group for me was very, very difficult. And I'm sure I'm going to catch some flack when when I do end up naming and showing you who my number one is. But this 07 group, I would strongly encourage you to take a look. And, and, and see what, what they were capable of. Because on their best day, this, this might have been the most talented group top to bottom as three-year-olds. The reason I couldn't put them number one is because as a four-year-old, with the exception of Curlin, they were all good. The ones that did run. But I think this next group, they may have a little bit more as far as substance, not only as three-year-olds, but moving on as to four-year-olds. So uh, let's take a look. My number one, as far as my opinion for the number one field quality for the field, and then going forward, the past 20 years of the Derby. I'm prepared for the backlash here, my number one as far as the fields for the Kentucky Derby over the past 20 years. Keeping in mind sort of my, what what my standards are, what what my ranking criteria are. Not only how good I thought the field was, where I'll admit they're probably not as talented as the field from 07. They're probably not as talented as as perhaps even the field from 15 with Pharaoh and and of that likes. It has to do with what they did as three-year-olds combined with their ability, because these are very talented racehorses, and the longevity that they had, what they did as four-year-olds combined with the different styles of races that they won as they got older. I went with the 2013 Derby. The 2013 Kentucky Derby was won by Orb. I'm a big fan of Orb, but no one is going to remember Orb as one of the great Derby winners of all time. They're just not. The interesting and the ironic thing about this race and this list that I've put together, the top four from the Derby really do not show up here at all because it was a complete pace meltdown and none of them really did a heck of a lot going forward. Um, I was interested in the horses that finished farther down the list, but they all came back and did some pretty substantial things from a racing standpoint. Hear me out. We have the Preakness winner, Oxbow. Oxbow, who was up there close to that wicked pace in the derby. He comes back two weeks later, gets a complete 180 as far as the scenario is concerned. He's able to get out there. He wins down at Pimlico. Yes, he doesn't really win anything else going forward. And I believe he only runs two more times, but you have the Preakness winner. Then you have a horse I like, will take charge. We'll take charge. If he doesn't get stopped in the derby, I think there's a legitimate chance that he at least threatens, if not outright wins the Kentucky Derby. Go back and watch that tape. He gets stopped when he's making his move basically the same time Orb is. He comes back later on and he wins the Traverse. He wins the 2013 Pennsylvania Derby. He wins the 2013 Clark Handicap against Older Horses. In 2014, he wins the Oakland Handicap. Sprinkled in there as a three-year-old, he nearly wins the Breeders' Cup Classic out at Santa Anita against Older Horses, Good Older Horses, and Mucho Macho Man and Declaration of War. He was hickory. He also ran some other giant races that he didn't actually win, but what he did as he got older, I, I have to give him more credit for that. Arguably the best horse from this 2013 race ended up being Palace Malice. And that that could be up for debate, I understand. But in my opinion, when you take a look at his overall body of work, he sets the wicked pace in the Derby with the Blinkers on. The Blinkers come off for that next race when he comes back. That ends up being the Belmont Stakes. He gets out there. We know how that plays out. He wins that race. He comes back. He wins the Jim Dandy up at Saratoga that same year as a three-year-old. Then he disappoints in the Travers. Now what are we going to do with him? He comes back and I don't want to say reinvents himself, but he kind of does because he had won the Belmont at 12 furlongs. He had been very competitive in mile and an eighth type races. He comes back in the Gulfstream Park Handicap in 2014. That's a one-turn mile. Then springboards into the New Orleans Handicap down at the fairgrounds. Two turns, obviously, going longer again. Comes back and wins the Westchester at Belmont Park and parlays that into the grade one mile. So... As a three-year-old, you win the 12 for Long Belmont, and then as a four-year-old, you win the one-turn, one-mile Met- Metropolitan Handicap. That's that's one of the cooler doubles that I think you could ever see, and I, off the top of my head, I don't know of a, a recent horse that's been able to pull off something like that. that, that you've got to be, if there are more than one, I mean, that that list has got to be about this long. It's just a really all-around, underappreciated runner. I would have loved to have seen him on grass. Um, Palace Malice, I think you could make the case that he is the, the cream of the crop as far as this 2013 Derby field is concerned, and I think he is a main piece to kind of pushing this group up my list. Uh Then you have a horse like Verrazano, who from a talent standpoint, raw ability, he may have been as talented as any one of these horses. His problem was, I think it was a little bit on the... Hmm... Mm if things didn't all work out his way, maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't go on with it. When he had it all work his way, he put on shows. I mean, his win in the Haskell was very, very impressive. He won by almost 10 lengths. But then I also have to, and I know he didn't win these races, but I factored in what he did when he was shipped over to Europe to run for Aiden O'Brien. I mean, he, he was group one placed in some big, big races. He nearly won a giant group one over at Royal Ascot. So Verrazano showed a little bit of versatility in different things that he could do, and he did that as an older horse, not just as a three-year-old. A horse that I think a lot of people forget about. It's my lucky day. He was one of the big talks going into the Florida Derby, going into the Kentucky Derby. He comes back, he wins the 2014 Salvatore Mile as an older horse, finishes second in the grade one Whitney, and then at the end of the month, he comes back and he wins the grade one Woodward in 2014. So another horse that just kind of adds to the the idea that they were good three-year-olds, but they continued and held their form and they continued racing and showed off what could be as an older horse. Another horse that fits that bill is Golden Sense. Golden Sense also ran in this year's Kentucky Derby, the 2013 edition. He was relatively close. It didn't work out for him, but as Time went on, and as he got older, he comes back. He wins the 2013 Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile. Say what you will about the Dirt Miles race. He was awesome in that race. In 2014, he wins the Pat O'Brien, which was at seven furlongs on synthetic, I believe. And then he repeats in the Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile. And both of his Dirt Miles were spectacular races, I thought. For him to set the fractions and take the heat that he did to still be able to finish, that, to me, again, shows a proper, good, middle distance horse. Okay, he wasn't a mile and a quarter type. Who cares? Doesn't mean that he's not a good horse. And if you want to add just another sort of under-the-radar type, what about ViJack? ViJack, they tried to go long, tried to go long, tried to go long. Finally, they get him back to one turn in the 2014 Kelso. He wins that race for fun. Then guess what? A few years later, they move him over to the grass. He ends up winning the 2016 City of Hope partially probably because of his genetics. Uh, He happens to be the older brother of Teppin, And this was when Teppin really started to flourish as well. He moves over to the turf, he starts doing big, big things. I, I recognize they may not have been the most talented as far as the horses that I just rattled off or horses that I have not put in my top five. And I'd be curious what your thoughts are on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt or beneath the video player on YouTube. But to me, between what they did in 2013 Not only coming out of the Derby, but down the line. And then as four-year-olds and older, what they were able to accomplish, the different types of races that they were able to win all over the place. I think the field for the 2013 Kentucky Derby, that's the one that I have, is the best top to bottom, what they were able to do on the track from a talent standpoint, what they were able to accomplish, and at the different sort of configurations. All of that, in a nutshell, is the reason I have them number one for the Derby fields over the past 20 years. So there it is, something a little bit different for this episode nine from Monday, April the 6th. Let me know if you would, first, if you enjoyed the show, uh, because I can do more of these sort of things. Like I said, they're not, I wouldn't call them evergreen, but they're never going to go really out of style. You're going to be able to listen to them. And you know, if you want to listen to it six months from now, it's not going to be like a timeless situation where, oh, well the races are coming up or it's just going over what just happened. But also, let me know if you agree with the list or you disagree with the list. Uh, And if you disagree, what do you think should be in there? You know what? Just for highs, give me your top five. Going back to 2000. 2000 to 2019. You got 20 races. Let me know your top five and why. More importantly, why. Um, Because that's that's what this is all about. Just trying to get some interaction going back and forth. Uh, There will be no Q&A this week. Uh, Hopefully, this can kind of... Dovetail, and we can roll this into next week's uh, pod. As far as the pick history is concerned, I only made two picks last week. Both of them were losers. So nothing really changed dramatically uh, from what we just saw in last week's pick history update. Uh, So the sample has only increased slightly and the numbers haven't really changed much. So uh, hopefully I'll get some more stuff out here shortly. Uh, We'll continue to add to that list and, and update things as they go along. But again, I'm curious, your top five Derby fields over the past 20 years... Give me what they are, tell me why, tell me if you agree with me, disagree with me, understand where I'm coming from, what's your criteria, the whole shebang. We all have time. Nothing going on. Take some time, think about it, do some homework, do some research if you have to. Let me know beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. If you've been listening on YouTube, subscribe. Make sure the bell icon's lit up so you get everything that In The Money has to offer. If you're over there, you might as well subscribe to my personal channel, Matt Bernier. Subscribe, bell icon. Follow me on Twitter, at Bernier underscore Matt. If you like to listen to this thing, just audio only. You don't want to look at this mug. You don't care about the desk and all this other stuff. In the InTheMoneyPodcast.com, Apple Podcasts. Anywhere else you get your podcasts, you can find it. If you really want to listen, you can find it. I appreciate all of you listening. Uh, Continued good health. Stay safe. uh, And I'll be back on Monday talking about something. Until then, because races are still going on. Until then, best of luck however you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play. It's been Episode 9 of The Matt Burnham Show.